Open it up to the book of Matthew chapter 22, and if you don't have a Bible, just grab one from in front of you. And so, as you may remember, we've been going through Matthew, the uh, drink from a fire hose method, or a chapter at a time. And so, one of the things we saw in chapter 19 was the idea that if you're going to be in, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to be all in. It needs to not just be, eh, you know, maybe I'll try this out. You need to be all in. And so the disciples then ask, well, what's the reward for being all in? All in? And Jesus says, well, it's not exactly what you think it is. Because those that are greatest in the kingdom of God are the servants. But yes, there is a reward for being all in. And the disciples struggle to understand his teaching as evidenced by two of them have their mom come and say, hey, Jesus, can we get the top positions in your kingdom? And Jesus, again, kind of prophesying what's going to happen, says to them, listen, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Here's what's coming. Crucifixion's coming. Trouble's coming. Then last week we saw the clues of the kingdom. There's a different kind of king, as evidenced his entry into Jerusalem was not as a conquering king would be on their large horse in armor, but rather humbly. And then we saw various questions or various clues of the kingdom. Jesus comes to the temple and he says, this is not, this is not how it's supposed to be. He drives the money changers out. This is not my kingdom. It's not a kingdom of commerce. Then he curses the fig tree, giving another clue saying, hey, listen, my kingdom is not for show. It's not to impress people with its outward displays of power. And then, of course, the people there challenge Jesus' authority. And at that point, Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. And he tells the parable of the tenants, those that are going to take the prophets, which they have, and thrown them out, and they're going to kill the son. And the chief priests and the Pharisees at the end of chapter 21 are none too happy. They think that maybe Jesus is talking about them. Which brings us to chapter 22. This is God's word that we come and read from. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to them, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
And the Pharisees went and plotted, plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. It is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and I pray that as we look at it today, that your spirit would minister to us, and that you would make your word live in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you for your son and pray in his name. Amen. When I was about 10 years old, a family friend of ours went to Russia, and she returned, and she wanted to have our family over for a Russian dinner. And so she went shopping at the Russian store and got it all arranged, and so here we are at her house sitting there, and of course the first course is some crackers with caviar. Now, I don't know if you know about the palate of the average eight-year-old as to whether it's, you know, developed enough to appreciate caviar on top of crackers, 
But I can assure you that the primitive reflexes of myself and my siblings were not so advanced as to appreciate it. And as one course after the other came out of the kitchen, it seemed like this pattern just seemed to duplicate. It was just too fancy. It was too good for us. And I'm reminded of another sequence, the things that stick in your head. When I was probably that same age, someone in the church had us over for steak. And my dad said before we came, oh, you should just throw some hot dogs on the grill for the kids. (laughs) Because if you give them steak, they won't appreciate it for what it is. It's not worth it. Which then again reminds me of the famous idea from C.S. Lewis that if you tell someone about a holiday at the sea and their frame of reference is that they love the mud puddle that they're playing in, they won't want to go because they'd rather just stay where they are. And maybe it's a vast oversimplification of the first parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 22 But there's a sense that we've got all of the people that are listening, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, maybe even the disciples and the crowds that are being told about a kingdom that goes beyond their experience. And most of them, their response is, I'd actually rather just keep the life I have. I'd rather just stay with what I'm doing rather than to see this kingdom of God. And sometimes I wonder if that is a default of people in our world and even Christians. That when God calls us, calls us to see the splendor of his kingdom, to see what it truly means to live for him, there's a sense of, well... I'm pretty comfortable. Like, I like the religion that I have. I don't really want to change. And I don't want to really be challenged. I just want to comfortably live my life, live out my religious rituals, if you will. They're they're meaningful to me, and so I'm, I'm not looking for further up and further in. I'm just looking to continue with the status quo. And of course, if you're looking to continue with the status quo in your spiritual life or in your marriage or in any part of your life, if you're looking to maintain the status quo, if somebody comes and tells you the status quo is wrong and you must stop the status quo, you don't really respond with, uh, well, welcome. I'm so glad you're here to disrupt my life. Instead, you respond by saying, excuse me, but no. And in this opening story, we see two responses, right? One response is they just ignored the message of the kingdom. The the messengers were sent out to say, hey, the kingdom's ready for you. The feast is here. And they're like, well, actually, um, we, we have other things that are going on. It says they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. We have the, the, the irreligious, the agnostic, the atheist just says, oh, they're proclaiming the kingdom? Well, I actually got to get to work, and I got to take care of my business, and the car needs to be fixed, and, you know, God's kingdom seems to be irrelevant to my life. 
But then you have a group that is not so, is not so passionless. You have the group that says, well, wait a minute. This message of the kingdom of God is a threat to my status quo, and they grab the messengers and they kill them. Well, the, the, the master says, well, I have a feast. I have a kingdom. I'm not going to leave the houses empty. I got to do something. And so he goes out and he calls and he says, bring the good and the bad, the ugly. I mean, just go out and get everybody and bring them in. And again, this echoes chapter 21, right? Where Jesus says, here's how you can tell the kingdom is coming. The sinners, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, they're coming in. And so he's filling up the kingdom, filling up the hall. Because those that were called refuse to respond. Many are called, the story finishes, but few are chosen. And so the, the question for us this morning would be, what is our response to the kingdom? That's what Jesus was putting in front of all of the people that were listening to him. What will your response to the kingdom be? Well, you might say, well, before I'm in, before I respond, can I ask some questions about the kingdom? And so, ultimately, what the rest of this chapter does is it's full of questions about the kingdom. Now, these are not friendly questions. <laughs> Make no mistake that these people who are asking questions about the kingdom are looking not to understand so that they can enter the kingdom, but they're looking to discredit the kingdom. But for us, as we, in a sense, watch and see these questions being asked, I want us to see how the answers of questions that were meant to discredit the kingdom actually demonstrate what the kingdom is. So the answers that Jesus gives to questions show his kingdom. If you like a theme statement, you could put that in your notes. The answers to the questions that Jesus receives show the kingdom of God. So, question number one. The Pharisees come to him, and the, the Pharisees, of course, were your religious, spiritual, kind of culturally liberal people. So maybe we don't generally associate that in our culture. We don't have the political party of the spiritual liberals. Um, but here we have the Pharisees. And they, of course, do not like the message of the kingdom because it's a threat to their kingdom. Pharisees believed in supernatural things. They didn't believe that resurrection was impossible. They were certainly students of, of God's word. They knew the Bible. And they came to him along with the Herodians. The Herodians would have been your people that were appointed to religious position in the kingdom. So they, they had an interest in the status quo being maintained. So you, you have these groups together that are saying, hey, we want the status quo maintained. Let's figure out a really hard question. And of course, if you're going to ask somebody a really hard question, you butter them up first. 
You say, so, teacher, we know, this is verse 16, that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. And of course, this is just, it's true, they're speaking the truth, but they don't believe it, because otherwise they'd actually listen to Jesus. But they've discounted him, they're trying to discredit him. So even as they are being disingenuous, they're speaking the truth. How funny and ironic is the kingdom of God that those trying to destroy Jesus speak the truth about him. Well, they ask him a a question. And here's the reason why this is a gotcha sort of question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? There was a subgroup of the Jews, the zealots, that said, no, Rome is bad, Caesar is bad, don't pay taxes. And they didn't understand that you just needed 11 kids, and then there's no way that you'd ever pay taxes. But since they didn't know that little trick to get out of paying taxes, they're asking this trick question because they said, if Jesus answers pay taxes, then he'll alienate a whole bunch of Jews and they won't like him. And if he answers don't pay taxes, well, then he's got a target on him from the government and we can accuse him of insurrection. We can accuse him of being against the government and that will give us grounds to kill him too. So there's no way we can't win with this question. And so they ask the question and they're, you know, rubbing their hands together. We're just so clever. You can just think of them, you know, I can just imagine before they go, they're just in this circle and they're exchanging ideas and finally they land on the clever one. They're just like, yes, we're going to nail him. So Jesus says, well, get me a coin. And there's a coin and... um, the coin would have had Caesar's face on it, um, and it, it would have had some sort of reference to Caesar being um, a high priest or a god, okay? So that was what was on a coin, right, at that particular time. And so Jesus says, hey, who, who, who's, who's on that coin? Who's the god of money? And they're like, well, Caesar is. Oh, so what, what do you give to God? What's the sacrifice you give to Caesar? Well, you pay taxes. Oh, I see. So, he says to them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's got Caesar's name on it. This money can't buy you anything in the kingdom of God. So, go ahead and give it to him. And at that point, you know, they'd be like, yes, we've got him. We got him. Yes. Our trap worked. But then he just nails them. And he says, you need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but you need to give to God what is God's. In your life, you are made in God's image. You are made by God. Your life belongs to him. You need to give him what he asks of you. Caesar asks of you money, you give it to Caesar. God asks of your service in his kingdom, you need to give that to him. And... I have to think that their marveling at the end of the story was not that they were not that they were pleased, but they were amazed that he had outsmarted them. <laughs> they were amazed that this Jesus, we can't trick him. Like he knows the punchline. It's like he knows what we're thinking before we think it. It's almost as if he can read our hearts. And it is, in fact. 
that Jesus can read the hearts of people. And it doesn't matter what the outward facade or flattery or behavior or whatever else that anyone does, Jesus isn't fooled. And Jesus understood very clearly that they were withholding their hearts and their lives from service in God's kingdom. And so he nails them right where it hurts. And sometimes I wonder if in our world are we withholding at times the service that God requires of us? Are there times that God gives us opportunities to serve and we're just like, no, that would, that would go outside my comfort zone. I'm not going to do that. Are there times that God would say the, the patterns that you have in your life are fine, but I'm actually calling you further up and further in. I'm calling you to render to God what is God's. So there's question number one that Jesus answers about his kingdom and about who he is. That my kingdom is one where people who are called into my kingdom gratefully serve from the heart and they give to God what belongs to God. Well, there's question number one. Well, no sooner are they done than the next political party comes. So if we have the, the party of the Pharisees and the Herodians, the opposite party would be the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were your conservatives, okay? And so your conservatives, they believed only in the five books of the Old Testament, and they were essentially existentialists. Existentialists were, you've got right now, that's all there is. They did not believe in the resurrection, as is pointed out in our text. They said, you've got your life right now, you need to boldly live it right now, and once your life now is done, that's it. And the way that you live a good life is by following God's law. That's the way, that's the provision for how you live a good life. Follow the law. Okay? So they come to Jesus, and they also are not pleased with him for obvious reasons. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't believe in anything other than the first five books of the Bible, and you're not looking for a Messiah because you don't believe in the afterlife, Jesus is a threat to your status quo. Jesus is a huge threat to someone who's an atheist because it urges that atheist to ask the question, does my life last more than right now? Is there purpose beyond right now? And so, they give him this scenario. And again, the disingenuousness of it. They don't believe in the afterlife, so they're asking him a question about what happens in the afterlife. So there's a, a woman who gets married and doesn't have kids, and her husband dies. People died a lot more and a lot younger then. It was just a thing. Now, everybody still dies, but we live a lot longer than they used to. And accidents are far less common than they once were. So we naturally expect that lives last a while. It was common for someone to be, to be, uh, to be widowed in that culture. Okay? So a, a woman without a husband that had been married, it would be really hard for her to find any other husband. And usually she would be sentenced to a life of poverty. And so this is kindness, that she would be, have a place to go and someone to take her in and to provide um, a, a family for her. So, that's the, that's, the, that's the scenario, right? So she has seven, seven husbands. And so they're like, well, who's, who's she going to be married to in heaven? 
And Jesus has a, a very blunt response, and I want you to just appreciate it for a minute. What does he say? You are wrong. <laughs> I don't know how many of you like hearing that. <laughs> this is, and I don't think that um, the English language doesn't do justice to it. It's a little stronger than that. I, it, I wouldn't, you know, want to use language that's too strong, but it's sort of like, oh, you idiots! Like, what on earth are you thinking? He says, here's the problem with your question. You don't know the Scripture, and you don't know the power of God. And if you knew the Scripture, and you knew the power of God, then you wouldn't be asking such a lame question. And then he gives them two answers to their question. And I want to do the, the second answer first. The, the second answer is in verse 32. And again, I want you to appreciate that he immediately goes to quote Deuteronomy chapter 6. So he immediately, or actually this is, ex, sorry, Exodus 3. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is what he quotes to the next guy. Exodus 3, he immediately goes, because Exodus, this would have been something that the Sadducees would have said, this is our scripture. So he doesn't quote any of the prophets. He says, we're going to go right at your scriptures, Mr. Sadducee. And what did they say? When Moses was met in the wilderness, and Moses asked, who, is the, who are you? He's, God said, I am the I am. I am the God of Isaac, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. What is Jesus saying? He said, if you read your scripture you would know that in Exodus, Abraham was spoken of in the present tense. What does that mean? That Abraham is not gone. That Abraham lives in God's presence now. And in our world, there's a sense that it is very painful and difficult. When someone dies, we have to say goodbye to them. We don't see them again in this body. But there's that hope that the Christian has that, hey, there... It is not simply this world and this body, but we have a soul that lasts forever. And God is saying to Moses, listen, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not gone. They still are. I am not a God of the dead. I am the God of the living. People who are loved by God are alive. And people who are not loved by God, they can die. And they disappear and hell is real, but that's not what Jesus is addressing here. He's saying, if you're loved by God, you're real. You exist. You exist eternally. And so if you actually read your Bible and read about how God speaks about people who have died on earth still living in eternity, then you'd have your head on straight and you wouldn't ask such a dumb question. Well, I'm sure that they really appreciated that answer. But I, I want you to appreciate the power that that answer has. Sometimes I think that as Christians, we're tempted to take on the world's vocabulary. And we're to speak of people who love the Lord that have gone to be in his presence as if they are not. As if they do not exist. And it is important for us to remember that the Bible does not speak that way at all about those who have gone to be in the presence of the Lord. And so there is great comfort and there is great encouragement 
the Bible says, listen, there is a resurrection. There is eternity. There are people who are now with the Lord. And there's no reason, Mr. Sadducee, why you should deny that, because it's right there in the Bible that even the very part of it that you accept, even though you've rejected all the rest of it. But then he says one other thing. He says, you also don't get it because in the resurrection you neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, of course, the, the natural response to that would be, oh, so we all, are we all friends then? Oh, no, we're not dating, we're just friends. <laughs> you know, that sort of conversation. Well, no, it's actually better. Like, there aren't people who are single. There aren't people that are alone in eternity. There's the whole analogy of the wedding supper of the Lamb. That you're redeemed by Jesus. You belong to Him. His love is set on you. And what is there is beyond what you could imagine on earth. And so you're taking an earthly system that is completely inadequate for describing heaven. And you're trying to take that earthly system and apply it to heaven, and you just can't do it. It just doesn't work. And every time you try to take an earthly way of thinking and say that's the way it's going to be in eternity, you're failing to grasp. And again, the Bible is full of analogies. Of We see through a glass darkly. We can, we can even with the most amazing language of heaven that exists in the book of Revelation, like the best that our brains can get around, their, their minds around, the best that our itty-bitty pea brains can get, it, we, can't, we can't fully grasp what the Lord has prepared for those that love him. And so Jesus is saying, listen, God's the dead. God is the God of the living and not the dead. And if you don't want to be dead, and if you want to be alive, if you want your life to matter and to be real, then what you need to be is loved by God. Okay. So, he's absolutely nailed the liberal Pharisees. He, now he nails the conservatives. Well, you might say, what more is there for Jesus to do? Well, don't worry. They're not done with him yet. The questions which Jesus is giving answer to, they're still coming. Verse 34. We have the Pharisees again come. And they heard about what happened to the Sadducees. And they're like, maybe we can still nail him. Maybe we can still get him. And so one of them was a lawyer. And if you're a lawyer, bless you. But what lawyers are taught to do is to find the, you know, find the little detail that was overlooked and exploit it, right? And so this person comes to Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? And I mean, this is just fraught with all sorts of trouble for Jesus, because whatever answer you give, well, and how about this? Or are you, are you saying that matters less? I mean, so he asks, and Jesus, again, goes straight to the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
okay. They're like, well, that's from the Bible. Oh, shoot, he got us again. Again, I want us to appreciate, um, well, while questions are complicated, answers are simple. Do you appreciate what Jesus is doing? Is he saying, hey, you're coming to me with these technical questions about paying taxes to Caesar. The answer is simple. Serve God and give it to him. You're asking technical questions about who are you end up married to in heaven. And the answer is simple. God's power is greater than you could ever hope for or imagine. And then they come and say, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, well, that one's been on the books for at least 1,500 years, too. <laughs> Are you guys not the scholars that you claim to be? Have you not read your Bible? Don't you know what's in there? And sometimes I like to think that there are all sorts of complicated questions that exist in our world, too. And sometimes we as Christians feel all sorts of pressure to answer them. What is heaven like? I mean, where do we go to find an answer? We go to God's Word. What is it like to love the Lord? It means that everything is his. And I want you to just appreciate the sequence. Jesus is pounding home the same point over and over and over again. And the point that he's trying to pound home, he turns around as he stops the questioning and asks a question. So now we have the tables turned. The Pharisees the crowds, the disciples, they're sitting there, they're gathered together, and Jesus says, all right, now it's my turn. I've answered all of your questions, all the things that you meant to stump me with. His question is, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? The one that's prophesied that the Son of God, what do you think about him? And they answer, of course, they take up their Bibles and they say, Well, he's the son of David. They think, We're safe, we've got a good answer. Um, and the great thing about Jesus is when you answer the trivia question right, he still wants your heart. And sometimes I think that we as Christians think that if we're good at Bible trivia, then we're really good Christians. If we're faced with a scenario and we know the Bible really well, and we can get the right answer and even do the right answer, then we're living well. And Jesus says, eh, I want to nail their heart just one more time. I want to nail their heart with the bottom line here, which is you need to see who the Messiah is. And if you don't see who the Messiah is, then you're not going to believe anything that I've told you. And you're not going to live out any of the truths that I have revealed to you. And so he says to them, and again, using scripture, he says, 
Let me quote David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I put your, until I put your enemies under your feet. He says, so if David says that this Messiah, this son of David, is the Lord, how is he David's son? Like, how does this work? And Jesus is he's presenting something that is a bit of a mystery, but he's also just nailing him straight up. He's saying, this is me. I am the Messiah, the son of David that is the Lord. And what are you going to do about that? What is your response going to be? Well, what was their response? We see it in verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> and it, it's sort of like, um, for lack of a better analogy, you have a, a really excited college freshman that shows up in class and thinks that they know more than the professor does. And, you know, first opportunity, their hand shoots up. I got a question! And the teacher looks at them and is like, what do you want? But teachers can't do that in today's world. But imagine that they did. And the student has this brilliant question that surely the professor can't answer. And the professor says, well, that's a good question. But it's the wrong question. And so we're not even going to address it further. But let me tell you what the right question is. The right question that needs to be asked is, are you going to follow Jesus or not? The right question that needs to be asked is when the feast is laid and the invitation goes out and you are beckoned to come in, are you going to come in or not? And it may be that you have reservations, that you have questions, and God is good for them. If Jesus is kind enough to entertain questions of, should I pay taxes? And to answer them by saying, you should give to God everything that is due to God. If he's willing to answer the questions for the liberals, and then he turns around and answers the questions for the conservatives, who think it's their power and their rules that will get them right. He's willing to answer those questions. He's willing to ask answer big cosmic questions. What's my life about? What should be my principle for what I do and how I live? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's willing to answer all the questions that anyone brings. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter about the adequacy of the answers if the answer is, I reject Jesus because I have no faith and I refuse to have faith. And that is the response, sadly, of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all of these people that in short order are going to drag Jesus in front of the high priest, in front of Pilate, and to accuse him. Their response is to say, not that the message isn't true, but we hate the messenger because we know that if we heard him, and if we believed, we'd have to change the way we live. And I think this is a, honestly a message that is needed for our modern-day Christian culture that thinks that you can have the world and Jesus is the cherry on top. 
We have this easy believism that sometimes we don't want people to have to do too much. We can't ask too much of them in following Jesus. And so we'll just ask a little bit. They can keep everything, and then they'll just have Jesus too. And Jesus isn't offering that kind of Christianity to anyone. The, the wedding feast that is spread is not, you're going to keep all the things of this world um, and, and then also eat at the feast too. There's a choice that has to be made. And those that make the choice are only able to do that because of faith. And so it would be my prayer this morning that We are not people that confess Jesus in a sense that it's easy for us to do that and we're not willing to give anything. That we're not people that are asking questions but are unwilling to receive the obvious answers that Jesus is willing to give us. And don't get me wrong, Jesus meets people where they are. He meets skeptics where they are, even if the questions they ask are not brilliant and are denial. He still meets them as he meets us. But when the feast is spread, we need to not be the people, as C.S. Lewis put, that are playing in the mud puddle and that say, let me keep this. But instead, we need to say, I'm willing to give up my preconceived notions of what I thought religion and my life and spirituality and discipleship might mean. And I'm actually willing to take what Jesus says about life now and in eternity and believe it to be true. And it's by faith we do that, that we believe. As, as many of you could testify, sometimes it's a pretty wild ride. But the alternative of living a faithless life and walking away into the darkness, of not being known and being real for eternity with Jesus, indeed, that's a terrifying alternative. But God's promise that those that are alive in him now will live with him forever, that's one to take to the bank. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the way that you work in our hearts and lives through it. pray that you would send your spirit to transform us and to grow us so that we might be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Even as we think of Jesus and his work for us, um, the hymn before the throne of God above. Let's stand as we sing. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who never lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. Time.
tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. The book of Revelation ends with the words, He who testifies to these things says, Behold, I am coming soon. And so as we live for the Lord in our lives today, I would encourage you to think of God's power. What does it mean that God's power is at work in our